December 19th, 1977. Completely. What's the pickup on that thing? This is a this is a built-in mic. Hello. Hi. Is it Mr. and Mrs. McQuaid or? No, no. McQuaid and McCray. McCray. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mrs. Enos. Hello. Hello. Pleased to meet you. I'll be upstairs if you want. Okay. Yeah, that's just got a built-in microphone there, and. Um, well, it's just, I've got one of these little Sony's, and it has a built-in microphone. Yeah, this is just the big and daddy the of that one. thing. Uh, well, when I talk, of course, when I listen back to myself, I sound like a polar bear with a croup. But, uh, um, but you know, I it's get like that grinding noise in there all the time. I sound like the little mix master running at the other end of the table. Oh, it picks up the noise of yeah, itself. Yeah, motor noise. Well, this one is better insulated. And of course, yeah. this is just this is the the real. That's the real. I see. You see, and it's a lot quieter. Yeah. Anyway, so that works yeah, out pretty well. And uh, there's this automatic level control, so if you get up too close, you don't uh, knock it off the perch. Yeah, closer you get, the better, happier it is. You know, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's. I've had very good luck with this, and I've seldom had to use the uh, supplementary uh, microphone with it. Mm -hmm. You know, last tape I had from Phil, he did it in the dark room while he was uh, running the dryer, and mm -hmm. uh, I forget what else he was doing at the same time. But <laughs> there was a lot of background noise. Well, that's the that's the bad thing about the uh, mm -hmm. the mic. If somebody you know washes their hands in the next room, it <laughs> it picks yeah. it up. It really is. It doesn't yeah. discriminate between a good noise and a bad noise. <laughs> you can teach you to just listen to people's well, voices. Like I read the other day, all music is noise, and all for the, all art is merely smudges on paper. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> let me just let me just ask you some basic things about yourself to to give me some kind of factual points here. Like, when were you born? It was a good place to start. Well, December 12, 1897, around Sumner Park here in Rochester. And uh, I'll show you a picture in a few minutes that uh, will give you an idea of where I got interested in photography. Uh, my dad worked for the uh, uh, Rackenbaugh Morian Will Company. Ever hear of them? For the what? Rackenbaugh. R A C H A M B A U Mori and Will. They made uh, coated glass plates here in Rochester back in the 1880s. Mm -hmm. And he had nothing to do with the scientific end of it. He worked uh, in um, the office. Mm -hmm. But got interested in photography and somewhere or other acquired an old, have you ever seen one of those four by five box cameras that held 12 glass plates, four by five plates? I've in, seen something similar in to that. In metal yeah. septum, septums and it had a big knob on the side. Otherwise, just like a two-way brownie, it had a a lens and the old shutter with the kidney beam hole, a bean shaped hole in it, and a felt plug you kept in there and tried to remember to take out when he used it. <laughs> and uh, you, you made an exposure, and then you turned this knob, and the, pl the exposed plate was put face down in the well in the camera, the and a spring loaded gadget pushed the next one up in place. And I've forgotten whether there was a counter on it or not, but uh, far back as I can remember. He'd uh, make pictures of that thing, mm -hmm. and uh, and if I was a good boy, I was allowed to sit up and watch him develop them. Now this and was this was someone that you knew, or uh, my father. Oh, your oh your father. Yeah. Oh. Uh, he worked, uh, as I say, were eighteen only eighteen eighties, because after that he worked with the Rochester Herald in the office, which was um, you know in the morning newspaper here then, and then in nineteen hundred he started at the R T French Company. Having met George French through the Naval Reserve connections, and he was there. Through the Naval Reserve? Did you? He was in the Naval Reserve. And 
You know where uh, Monroe Avenue comes in the Clinton there? Kind of, yeah. The old yeah. brick building that they call, it used to call Convention Hall. I don't know what they call it now. Hmm, I'll I, have to look. When I was a kid, that was the Naval Reserve Armory. And that was quite a thing around here. They had a, uh, I don't think they ever had any power equipment, but they had a couple of whale boats and a um, shed and a dock down right near the yacht club. Hmm. And it was, it was, well, there weren't golf clubs and things around those days. That's what the young men did. Yeah. And um, hmm. like get you this picture. Okay, sure. Hmm. Go ahead. You want to leave that thing running? Yeah, or? it'll run for an hour and a half the way it's set oh. up now without touching it. So oh. it's uh, it's easier than stopping and starting it. Easier than stopping and starting it. Maybe you wanna, that's okay. I was going to say maybe you want to pull that chair up a little, but actually that's good because then he'll project to you. Let me give you this. And that's where we're at. Oh, I know Bill Ronhauser, sure. Uh, Bill's been out of the house a couple of times when Phil's been in town. Now this is, this is you. Well, if you look in the mirror, you'll see Dad with the camera and oh, Mother kibitzing. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How the heck are you getting me to hold still that long? Was, uh, a little whiskey know. in the milk bottle. <laughs> I don't know. But I'd guess I'm about a year older. I don't know, that's probably 1898. 99, somewhere along there. Mm -hmm. And this is a copy print you've made to yeah. yourself? Yeah, the, the old plates. Yeah. Oh, mother had a lot of them around, and then she got uh, tired of having them around, and unbeknownst to me, threw them away. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Well, a lot of that goes on, boy, and throwing the stuff away. When I was a, oh, the fireback guy can remember, he had an old tandem, and <laughs> he fixed it up with a, a little bucket seat up front. For you? With a strap that was where I rode, and the camera rode on the luggage carrier over the back wheel and dad would take me out to well we used to call it south park it's now genesee valley park mm -hmm. and we'd make some pictures and then I'd that was a standard watch him develop them he had one of these kerosene ruby lamps they used to call them in those days that was an ortho plate so you could oh, watch you. the whole thing sure. develop yeah <laughs> we contacted so he said the photography isn't any fun anymore you can't see what's going on <laughs> that's true actually yeah. i often uh, thought it'd be nice to really watch the negative develop but uh it's not a very advisable procedure these days. Mm. Well, so what is your what is your father's name? Just I don't know if I was his name Franklin also. Frank M. He was Frank Morrison Enos. I was Franklin J. Enos. And uh, as I say he started with the R.T. French Company in 1900. And of course, uh, that was the only place I ever thought of my doing any work. So I always was going to be a mustard salesman, which mm -hmm. I got to be. And uh, hmm. see, I, well, I went to high school in Rochester. Graduated from West High in 1916. Mm -hmm. Entered the University of Rochester that fall, and uh, war started in the, World War One started in the following April. So a lot of us just went down and enlisted. Well, I spent four years in the army, or two years in the army, year with over in France, mm -hmm. and then got back. And well, I didn't want to go back to college, but the family insisted I do. So I finished up in two years. I was a senior in college for three years. I was in college three years. I was a senior for two of them, and <laughs> graduated. So what what did you do in the uh, when you were in the army? Anything particular, or were you? Uh, did you see any combat, or did you get over there after? Or? Oh no, we. Well, I, I started out um, with H Troop, the First New York Cavalry. I was a National Guard officer, just gotten back from the Mexican border, and uh, then we were federalized and got as far as Spartanburg, South Carolina. And the, 
horses went on over to the Remont Depot and we walked from then on. I was a private first class in a machine gun outfit. Mm. And we had about six, seven months up in the trenches. We were brigaded with the British up in Belgium and northern France. And we were the first combat division home, got home. I got discharged first of April 1919. And that summer, another guy and I drove out to the West Coast. Now that was quite a trip. It was, days. yeah. It was like uh, no yeah. no superhighway between here and there. It just went from town to town. Yeah. I think I can walk over those. Yeah, alrighty. My filing system leaves something to be desired. Listen, if you got it in files, you're already ahead of 80% of the people who have all this stuff, you know? Well, I've only claimed filing stuff, no problem. Remember, where the hell you put it? It's <laughs> getting it back out. Probably, yeah. Well, here, now, those may come apart on you, but... Now, these are, uh, this well, is you, from that first trip? Yeah. Oh, I see, it's all one, it's all one. It's all one, if you get them to stay together. You're talking about the highways. That's, <laughs> that's, uh... The, no, the super highway across North Dakota. Okay, so this is a this is a car on what looks to me like a a place where there's a little less grass growing than the rest of the <laughs> the yeah. prairie. Well, there were, there were two trails, there were two tracks, and the um, it was the National Parks Highway, and every once in a while somebody would have painted a red and a white line around a fence post. And that was how you could tell you were still on the road. Yeah. Well, there weren't many, many roads. <laughs> you had to keep going west. That's all. This is a, that's crossing the Missouri River. There. There's a ferry that. Take you across. I don't know where the heck that is. Montana, it says here, and then Wyoming. Well, probably. And, then, and that's a question mark <laughs> where that one is. Oh, no, wait. How's this going? Yellowstone. Five mm -hmm. years after they allowed cars in. More Yellowstone. Yeah. Those are all uh, contact prints from negatives I made with a either a, a Seneca vest pocket or a two-way box brownie. And I found the contact prints here a while ago, so I just set up the, the uh, Leica and made 35 millimeter copies of all the different prints, got them all so I could make that set from Yeah. Huh. So you were, you were photographing from day one, virtually, in other words. You were, oh. you were making pictures. Uh... Sure, always as a hobby. I've had it as a hobby ever since I can remember. My dad gave me this old box brownie when Oh, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, long in there, whenever they came out. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, that was a nice old colorblind film. You could do it in a tray. But then uh, I got hold of one of those, you ever seen one of those boxes that they used to have, a daylight loading tank? Mm. With a, a big spool and a black mm -hmm. apron. <laughs> yeah, I know what the kind of thing you it up, put the cover on, wound it all up, shoved the thing in the tank, filled that up, and developed it. So you you started uh, after you finished school. You, did you start right in then working for RT French? Yeah, I, I started there in, the, in January 1922, and was with them until my retirement date came in um, in uh, 62. Uh, December 62. I've been retired since then. You see. Mm -hmm. um, but I kept that photography all over all the time. Got down to Philadelphia. I'll see the company movie down there in April 1932. Mm -hmm. And then I found out about the Miniature Camera Club, so I joined that. And bought in, Phil me a, in Philadelphia? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bought me a Leica, an old Model A, second hand. 
Uh-huh. And uh, I think it probably cost me 35 or $40, man. I wonder uh. what they're worth now. They're yeah, that was a deal. Crazy <laughs> nuts. <laughs> yeah, we actually did, uh, Marilyn actually did some digging around and uh, before we came out. And from uh, annuals of photography and so on, found some, because I wanted to kind of establish, Phil said something about you summering out west or something like no, that. No, these last two winters. Uh, well, let's see, I was in Philadelphia until the spring of 36. We okay, had a plant down there, and I was down there at the plant with uh, the R.T. French Company. And yeah, because we have an address for you, Winville, Pennsylvania, which I guess Winwood. is... Winwood. Hmm? Winwood. Winwood, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, Just we lived the first year down there, we lived on the Hanford campus, rented a Professor Post house. He was on his sabbatical. Hmm. And uh, then we found this place over in Winwood and rented that for the other three years. So you were there for... Four years. Four years. And then they needed somebody to take over the sales out in the west coast. So I was sent out to San Francisco in the, uh, well, in April 1936. Yeah, we used to have this address here, Brennan Street. 383 Brennan Street, yes. yeah. We've done some looking up. That's the old San Francisco Warehouse Company. Third and Brennan is only a block from Third and Townsend. Do you know San Francisco? I don't know it too well. Mm -hmm. Just a little. And I used to commute. We lived down in San Mateo. I used to commute, commute on the train, and only had a block to walk. We had a company car in the garage, of the old warehouse building, and the office was in the warehouse building. Oh, so so Brandon Street is not where you lived. Brandon Street is oh, no, was the business address. We lived down on the, uh, Clark Drive in Mateo. Clark Drive. That, that's the other address I we found here. Mm -hmm. So you were out there until what? Uh, December '45. Came back here. Been back here ever since. Well, we had it uh, pretty well pinned down then. <laughs> well, that didn't prove a hell of a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... Yeah, but what I can't see is what are, you, what are you interested in? Well, we're interested in, you know, beyond sort of establishing where you were, when, and what, and so on. Just, uh, I think there's a starting to be um, a renewed interest in what's been referred to for a long time as pictorial photography. Then for a long time, as I'm, uh, obviously you're aware, you know, was sort of considered to okay. be terribly primitive by yeah. certain art historian type people in photography. Well, <laughs> didn't I read one of Nathan Land's publications recently? He had, I think, 20 papers submitted on photographic criticism, and they picked five or six of the guys and brought them here and then published the results. Yeah. And I made an honest effort to read the thing. I could not keep my mind out of what You did more than I did. On. The only thing that did, did uh, intrigue me was one statement by some joker from California. He said that a photographic critic does not need, nor need use, a camera. So I made a picture and sent it to Mason. I don't know where that is, but I've got another one. But <laughs> inspired by that, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, um, like for example, there's, there's a there's a couple people that I that I just names that I picked out as names that are sort of. You know, as far as I've been able to tell, the big names and the people you well, might have known. And let me just read the list to you here, and you can tell me, uh, we can talk about some of these people. Uh, Dassonville is one. Well, that's, uh, how about Philadelphia first? Okay, well, well I'm just, whatever, then no, you tell, yes. well, you tell me were, then. Well, and I got to be good friends. In fact, the last uh, five or six years we were out there, Will used to come all the way from 2200 Lake Street, ride the trolley over to the third and Brandon for certain towns and take the train down to San Mateo. He wouldn't let me come in and get him. And then he'd come out to the house for Thanksgiving dinner. Mm -hmm. And he always brought along a bottle of wine. <laughs> now, did you meet Dassonville? Did you say in Philadelphia? No, no. Oh, I thought you said... Yeah, well, you're talking about Dassonville. I'm talking... That's the time we were... San Francisco. Uh, in San Francisco. 
uh, known Philadelphia. That's where I met Louis Kondax first. But Louis was in Philadelphia at that time. And in those days, well, photography is so different now than it was. Mm. There was a bunch of us punks. We didn't know much about photography, but we had miniature cameras. You had a like or a contact, and you belonged to this club. And the uh, main object in the life of most of them was to make an 1114 print. It didn't look too much grain. Yeah. And, uh, well, Louie and well, all the professional Dick Dooner, Ted Peel, and all that gang. Oh, wait, what were those two names that you just... Well, Dick Dooner was then the leading portrait photographer in uh, in Philadelphia. Would that be uh, D-U-N-E-R? D-O-O-N-E-R. D-O-O-N-E-R. Dooner. Mm-hmm. And the other fellow was a Peel? Fred Peel. Were they like P-E-A-L-E? P-E-A-L-E-L. Mm-hmm. Um, and all these people were concerned with using the miniature? Was Ed, they'd come to all the meetings, and Dooner used to have us over to his studio uh, at least once a year and show us how he changed things around, how he had set up. He used to have a very interesting setup. It was a room, well, two-thirds again the size of this, with a fairly high ceiling. About 20 by 30, something like uh, that? And uh, lots of light in it, but you couldn't see where it was coming from. And uh, draperies all around it, uh, just hanging drapes of a neutral color, uh, varying uh, shades so that he could just quietly slide one over the background or use part of two of them, mm-hmm. and no camera in the room. He used to come in with a frock and a beret on and seat the subject and just talk quietly with them and somehow or other he had a series of signals so the guy outside would push the button at the, when he got the signal and change the plate and that's all there was to it. Sort of photographing him through an opening in the wall? Well, it must have been. It was, it was uh, when you sat in the room you couldn't see any camera. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. Peel uh, did a lot of work for the Reading Railroad. He was a commercial photographer and uh, Darn good one. He, he was. He had a, a shadowless lighting setup. You may have seen one, like an angel food take, cake tin, and through the hole in the middle was the lens of the camera, and then in the like a ring tin light. itself was were six photo flood bulbs, and that was his shadowless lighting. Mm-hmm. It was all right, except he got uh, quite a. Uh, pick up a catch lights in somebody's eyes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> have to retouch out seven of them or whatever. <laughs> well, so when you moved to San Francisco, you met Dastonville. Yeah. Now, how would you have just met him through camera club activities, uh, or how would no. you meet someone like that? Was he particularly well regarded at that point in time oh, already? Oh, well, was, it was the same out there. I mean, well, and uh, the rest of the photographers around San Francisco were just as interested, and in there was a San Francisco miniature camera club, and there was a... Uh, Photographic Society of San Francisco, which was uh, P. Douglas Anderson's group. Did you ever hear of him? No. Well, Pete used to teach photography in the extension course uh, for the University of California. And that building then was on Post Street, I think, right alongside the uh, Sir Francis Drake Hotel. Hmm. And Pete's alumni formed this group. Well, I knew a lot of the guys in the group. And finally, they decided that even if I hadn't taken Pete's courses, I should be a member of the group. So you just got I, to know them. I was, I was a member of the Photographic Society of San Francisco, and in those days, Ansel Adams lived in San Francisco, and oh, on two or three occasions, he was the speaker at the uh, annual dinner. 
And since I had a company car, this was during the Depression, you see, there weren't many cars around. Right. I was always delegated to go pick up Ansel and buy him a drink and take him to the dinner. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of what kind of relationship did Ansel have to those people? I mean, today very you think little, you think little, of him as oh. antagonistic to them practically. <laughs> he's, he's, yeah, he's he's too great for them. Uh, then the only time we see him all year was when he came to dinner. He mm -hmm. was he was quite a friend of. Uh, of Dassonville's, especially in the earlier years, and uh, you probably never heard of it or seen it. But um, one time, Ansel made a trip all up and down the, the west coast there, photographing all the missions. I don't know, there were fourteen or sixteen of them, the old Spanish missions, mm -hmm. on eight by ten plates. He made damn good negatives of all of them, and Will made all the prints on that paper he used to make. On the charcoal black or whatever? Yeah, mm -hmm. and they um, published a book, well, a very limited edition, of actual photographs. What, like a portfolio they, almost? Oh, well, a little bound book, but each illustration was an actual print mm. tipped in. Mm -hmm. And Will used to have one. Last time I saw Ansel, I asked him if he had one. He said he sure had, but I've never seen his. Hmm. And it was... Mm. Just some photographs of each other. Well, yeah, that will was interesting. You see, I was with uh, the R.T. French Company in sales out there. I had the seven Western states as a territory, so I got around a bit. And uh, uh, we were owned by J.J. Coleman in Britain, the mustard makers. Mm -hmm. And in Britain, J.J. Coleman and uh, Ricketts, uh, and Reckett and Sons, the laundry group and polish manufacturers, used to compete in Britain. But then the two boards of directors sat as an overseas board and split up the world business. Well, since Coleman had a, a good sales organization in the United States, we handled Ricketts products. Well, I, I knew we had Silvo and Brasso, and I knew we sold Laundry Blue, but I never actually sold any. My chief interest was French's mustard and bird seeds and spices and things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I hadn't been in San Francisco more than a month, I don't believe, when I got a call from Mr. Dassonville. Would I come down and see him? Well. Well, do you know San Francisco well enough to wonder no third in market in the old Monadnock building? Mm, I, I don't, um, unfortunately. Anyway, between Mission and Market is this little street called Minna Street. Well, it was just a cul-de-sac there. It's about oh, 200 yards long, I guess. And the Dassonville Company was on the second floor of one of those buildings down there. And uh, the whole Dassonville plant was probably about the size of the bottom of the, the floor floor of this house. Mm -hmm. Well, I had been getting stress marks on the paper, well, just a little black mark. And he was just simply going through every product that they used, and uh, apparently he was buying Ricketts rice starch. Well, I didn't even know he had it. But uh, I, I told him I couldn't help him at all with anything I knew, but I would see what I could do to find out. So He I was using this product, this rice starch, in, in the emotion, paper, in and he thought emotion. maybe that was the cause of it? He was just checking down everything that went in the emotion. Right. Well, fortunately, the, uh, I got a sample of the starch he'd use and uh, two or three other pieces of paper with the stress marks in the son of a Russia. So they sent him over to the lab in England and within uh, a short time, it surprised me how fast the answer got back, they pointed out that the stress marks were silver. And that enabled Will to find out what was the trouble. But from then on, we got along fine. So and you, you helped him solve his problem. And yeah, he, uh, yeah, but also we, we got to where we were pretty good friends. And uh, uh, 
as I say, the, the, the photographers in those days, they were interested in the young guys and in helping them uh, do things. And they, he was always at all the camera club meetings. And uh, Wasn't the kind of competitive atmosphere, you mean? None, none. That you find today in a split? And I got a whole bunch of prints from different guys. I never purchased a print or sold a print in my life. In those days, if you liked something, he gave it to you. I had a picture of Will. It was just remarkable to have somebody who was That's interested, right, huh? Just let me, I, I can pick my way through it. That's, <laughs> well. It was entirely different. And the thing was that then everybody was uh, interested in uh, making pictures. Now everybody's interested in writing articles and assuming a pedantic pose they know more than anybody else does about it. <laughs> it seems to me. Here's Will. And he's mentioned many times in there. That book is about Ian Keith, who was a uh, uh, quite a famous artist in, out there in California in the uh, early days. Mm-hmm. Keith, old master of California by mm-hmm. Brother Cornelius. Yeah. They had at the uh, at the fair out there in San Francisco in 38, 39, 42. they had a whole room of Keith's paintings. And uh, unfortunately, Keith was a good Scotsman and had um, been a little careful in the amount of money he expended on paint, mm-hmm. with the result that even then, many of them were losing their, uh, their color. Oh, huh. They were going kind of sepia. Well, I read the other day that the, uh, the watercolors out there were in Britain Turner. Oh, yeah, watercolor, a lot of it's very and, uh, fugitive. It goes they're uh, keeping them in a special vault and... <coughs> Out of the light. Out of the light, yeah. Controlled humidity and all of that, and just bring them out uh, for special for <coughs> six months or so and let people study them for a couple of hours, put them back. Yeah, a lot of a lot of painting is no more permanent than a lot of old photography. You know? God, any of these color pigments are nothing but uh, chemical compounds of one kind or another. A lot of them break down in the right circumstances. Who knows what they're going to do? Yeah. The only permanent uh, uh, prints are etchings. No, they got their lamp black stuck on the paper. And the only permanent photographs for my money are either brom oil or oil transfers. Because you got the same thing, you just put some ink on a paper. Yeah. And that ink is pretty permanent. It's nothing but, uh, well, linseed oil and uh, right, paper. Yeah. As permanent as anything's going to be anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the interest uh, these days in the older process is the permanence well, as well, <laughs> you know, among others. I'm not interested in archival uh, Processing, but uh, I don't want something that's going to last for two years. Sure, yeah. Now, that see that picture in the center up there. This landscape. Uh, that's the, the, the half dome at the Yosemite. Will made that in. Well, he shot the negative in 1906, and that print, just as it is there, framed that way, was exhibited at the San Francisco Exposition in uh, 1915, and that hung back at his desk. All the years he uh, had the, that I knew him, that he had the plant there on Menace Street. And we finally sold the plant and was getting rid of things. But he, he knew I liked that, so he gave it to me. Hmm. Well, I've had it ever since. And that's a carbon. Yeah, carbon is real permanent, I guess. Can't, can't do better. Well, so um, after you left San Francisco, did you still see Dassonville on occasion? or did? No, only once after that. I. They got me back here and put me to work. I mean, that, that job out on the coast was great. I had seven states to travel around in, and there were photographers and friends all over. And uh, uh, 
Well, business, the, the grocery business wasn't uh, the cutthroat affair it is now. And, uh, well, for instance, get up into Portland, Oregon uh, on a Monday morning, and everybody you saw, you spent the first half, three quarters of an hour listening to their projects on the, uh, on the, either out on the river fishing or playing golf for the weekend. And you got down to talk business. <laughs> but, a lot of small grocery stores and no, no, the, you know, the, the wholesalers. We had salesmen in all the various areas, and what I did was to ride the train around and uh, send whatever salesman I get for that day. He'd take me around to visit the various customers. Mm, I see. Yeah. Was the I don't really know anything about the RT French Can. Was the mustard business a pretty steady business during the Depression? I mean, was that was oh, that yeah. the uh, one of the, the better? Of, one of the best items was birdseed. A little ten ounce package of birdseed. That was our, our number one item on the coast when I got out there. Hmm. The French's mustard was second. That's kind of curious. The birdseed's kind of oh heck with television and the automobile and everything that people are doing nowadays. Who keeps the canary or uh, yeah, I suppose anymore. That's true. Yeah. Still pack it, I guess, but I don't know what it amounts to. I'm completely away from the business end yeah. of things now. So you said you saw Dassonville just one time after after you. Uh... Yeah, I went back out there in oh very early fifties. Yeah, we came back to here in forty five. I went out there around fifty or fifty one. Well, it was still around, and uh, I well, we saw him a couple of times while I was in San Francisco that uh, weekend. Mm -hmm. And then, well, very few years later, uh, got a letter from Don, his son, well, he died. So he didn't go with the business to New York when it was sold? There, I have found oh. some ads that, that his Well, that was an interesting deal. Uh, see, when the war came along, World War I put him out of the, out of the uh, portrait photography business because after that, no more platinum paper. And that was his standby. Mm. Well, listen to my patent platinum paper, and of course, the number of people were making fresh ferric oxalate in those days, so the platinum was no problem. But then the platinum price went way out of sight, and uh, Will began to fool around with various papers around the market and couldn't stand the quality he was getting, so he just started making his own paper. And that's where the charcoal black originated. Well, then World War II started, and Will was practically on his own. He had one gal who took care of the office work there, and all the rest of it he was doing himself. He was actually yeah. making it himself, really. Yeah, yeah. He had a cobbled-up coating machine there, and uh, he'd take four or five days to get set up and make a run of paper, and hmm. then he'd cut it all up himself. And, uh, well, it got to a point where he just couldn't handle it. The war, when the war started, who wanted uh, quality photographic paper, and he couldn't get a lot of the chemicals, and silver got hard to get. Yeah. So he sold it to this outfit uh, in New Jersey. I don't know what the name of it was. Uh, and he went back there, supposedly to spend at least six months to get them set up set up and making the paper the way he was. Well, I used to get letters from him. And uh, it, was, I, it was quite obvious from almost the outset that these guys weren't interested in the quality. They were interested in selling uh, Buying the charcoal name. black, Tassonville charcoal black. and. Uh, <laughs> he lasted about uh, oh, four or five months, I guess. He just came back to San Francisco. So the Dashonville black that was manufactured after that time had no, nothing to do with the original, no, with the original well, product. Well, I mean, it's got the same name, and they had yeah. the formula, 
but they didn't bother to get the know-how. This thing always intrigues me is about knowing about things. No, you can know about a hell of a lot of stuff by just reading about it. But when you really get to know something, especially in this photographic business, is when you do it. Yeah. And nobody can tell you how. And you can take all the recipes you want. <laughs> You gotta yeah. do it yourself to find out what's really going on. Yeah, that seems to be the some of the early yeah. photochemist things I've read. That's that's like these guys who were emulsion producers. They had they really there was no substitute for them. It wasn't as technical as it is now, I guess either. Take our mustard miller. He started in. This is back when I was in the business. He started in at the age of twelve, I think, with the Colin people over in Britain, hmm. and never even went to high school. But he was probably the best mustard guy in the world because he came all the way up through it. And when, it, when you finally got a technical lab set up and they started all this fancy stuff, why, Bill Fox would uh, tell by feeling it or looking at it or it was the wet mustard, he could just stick his finger on it and know whether he needed to tighten the stones a little bit or cut <laughs> down on the moisture. And the lab would go through all this other fancy stuff and come up with the wrong answers. Yeah. <laughs> huh. And then um, I often thought what Will knew, what Ned McMurtry knew out there, what... Uh, what who? Ned McMurtry. Yeah, I'm not familiar with him. Well, he was... Uh, he came from Boston. He came from a... Uh, um, his, his family and his wife's family were both in the textile business back there. Mm -hmm. World War One came along, and the textile business just took off like a skyrocket, making uniform cloth. The mm -hmm. uh, result was that Ned never had to do any work in his life, but he was an ambitious sort of a guy, and he used to work harder at his hobby than most guys work at their job. Well, he nice. wound up he, out in Pasadena, he and Doris, and had two kids. I met him after I got out to San Francisco because, uh, well, I started making gum prints back in the 30s, I guess, in the early 30s. And then I got out there and met Ned and found out about Carver and Carbro, and he was so interested in those. This is monotone in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just got to working with him and found out, well, what I, little I know, it rubs off on you working with guys. But sure. when you think what he knew, and could show you, but no way to put it on a thing like this or write it down so anyone could follow it. Yeah, you need a videotape of them at, or at least. You need to watch it and then do it yourself yeah. and get the feel of it. You can't tell them. Yeah, it's a, well, it's the whole thing of um, making pictures at all. You know, it's the best part mm -hmm. of the picture is not necessarily the part you can describe in words. Mm -hmm. It's the same is true of but these the, other things. I was thinking of Fred Archer, for instance, if you down there at the Art Center School and Will Connell mm -hmm. and Jack Barsby, who was a great friend of Ned's. And uh, I never met Bob Officer or John Paul Edwards, who was a floor walker in the, in the Emporium, big department store there in San Francisco. Oh, originally that's how he started? I, mean, well, I don't know where he started, but uh, that's when I knew him. But he was a member of the F-64 group, and uh, he was an excellent Bromwell worker. <laughs> what about Will uh, Connell? He was a, there were like I say I had this list of about maybe six or six or eight people who seemed to be some of the major figures you know from, from my perspective and Will Connell is a very interesting he, person he was to a, me. He was a nice guy, 
I don't have to remember two or three times when I was down in Los Angeles, I'd look up Ned and uh, we'd pick up Will after he got through with the art center school and go over to a tavern and sit around and have a few scotch and sodas. Well, scotch and sodas during the Depression were not very lethal. For, they cost you a quarter. Mm-hmm. And they would give us, they had a fancy way of pouring it. So it looked, you got like quite a lot. A little glass <laughs> like that with some scotch in it and lots of soda and ice. <laughs> but Will was a heck of a nice guy and a daggone good photographer. But he drank himself to death. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. And Fred Archer, uh, <laughs> one time during the war, Fred had assigned his class a job go out and photograph the uh, the new post office in Los Angeles. Well, he went back out an hour or so later to see how they were doing, and nobody was there. All been you know, chased away by the cops or they something? They were all in the clink. <laughs> we taking pictures of a federal <laughs> During the war, yeah. Yeah. Right, that's but uh, Fred was a. Fred used to get up to San Francisco quite often. He always came to the any camera club meeting was going on. And uh, there was an awfully interesting group. It had pretty well decimated by the time I got out there, but I knew about it before I went out. Called the Los Angeles Pictorialists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard of that. Well, it was just Ned, and Will Connell, and Fred Archer, and Bob Officer, and Barris being that group. And they used to have a, a salon each year, a national salon, international, and had an interesting way of judging it. One guy was assigned as judge each year, and he they just turned over, rent enough space so he get tables where he could lay them out and look at all the prints. He had absolutely no guidelines. All he had to do was to go ahead and pick out the ones he wanted to hang, so that was their show. Hmm. And I always used to send a print to that or send prints to that. You know, let's see what would happen. Yeah. But uh, it was unlike any other uh, photographic show I've ever known about. Did you send a lot of prints all through this time to various salons? Were you pretty not active lot, in that? Not a lot. I used to send out oh five or six times a year, just kind of keep track of how how I was doing. Not that I cared an awful lot, but just to see if they'd accept one. You weren't out to say you'd been in hundreds of well, salons or that God, kind of thing. Good God! I guess there were plenty of people who were though. Well, Ned, for instance, he got uh, when he started on something, he stayed with it. And uh, in 1932, if you look in the American Annual, you'll see that he and Frank Frapery tied were the most prints hung in salons all over the world. And uh, that was, Frapery was making the rules, but it was kind of like trying to get rid of Moran as the uh, county manager now. They're changing the rules during the game. <laughs> because Frapery's rules were definitely that only recognized salons would count. Mm-hmm. And there were lots of salons in those days, especially oh, Indian, parts of somewhere in England, Germany, where They'd hang everything that was sent. Mm. They didn't care. Uh, no, no jury. So Frapery, in order to tie Ned, counted some of the ones that he'd sent to him, salons that he didn't allow anybody else to get counted in. Oh. Ned never spoke to him again. So did you ever meet? wound up a fine friendship. Did you ever meet Frapery? I mean, he's an interesting Never person. did, no. No. It's just a name you would know real I well. I knew Fassbender. Uh, I knew, uh, I say I knew him, I met him. I knew Dr. Odell from uh, uh, DuPont over in Wilmington. He used to come over to Philadelphia and show us how to uh, do physical development. Hmm. He'd show up at the meeting with a piece of clear film, a little tray, and a bottle of liquid. Mm-hmm. At the start of the meeting, he'd put the film in and rock it a few times and go on and give his lecture. It was all over, he'd just pick it up and there was his negative. <laughs> <laughs> huh. What and, was his name? Odell? Odell. O-D-E-L? O-S-V-D-E-L-L. Ah. 
what a, so Fassbender was not someone you you just met him he, he casually, over, kind of, or did you well, know him well? Or? Not not well, but, but he would. See, I forget. He lived over in Jersey then. But see, Philadelphia and New Jersey were right close together. Sure. They'd, he'd come over for some of the meetings and uh, give us a talk, and he, he was uh, tremendously skillful at altering negatives. Paper negative and so on was. No, film negatives. He didn't buy the paper one. That was Max Thorek. Mm. And Max used to show up every year, regularly, for one of our meetings. And you ever heard of Delarty? Alfred Delarty? No. I got a call from him yesterday. <laughs> He's still going. But uh, one one of the times that uh, Thorek was coming over for one of our meetings, Al called me up and said, where can I get some white, shiny paper? You want a piece about 30 by 40? Well, I said, I think I can help you, because we had a print shop in the plant down there where we did some of our own labels and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got him a sheet of just white plate paper. Mm -hmm. So we took that and mounted it on a great big piece of mounting board. And down in the corner, he cut out a little corner of the thing and stuck it down there. That was Eskimos at the North Pole. And this was a contact print of the original negative. Well, Max already got a tremendous boot out of that. So the next time we had a piece of red paper, uh, dark red. That was the Moors crossing the Red Sea. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, this Delarty, he's, he's wonderful. He's the one that invented the uh, invisible neck strap for the uh, contacts. Hmm. And he had a friend with him that uh, he wanted to impress. So he'd walk into a camera store, and the guys all knew him, of course. And he'd say, uh, have you got one of those uh, neck straps for the contacts? Those invisible ones? Yeah. I think so. Wait a minute. Guy to open the drawer. Is that it? No, I want the bigger one. This one? Yeah, that's the one. How much? Six dollars. So I'll give him the six dollars and put this thing in his pocket. And the poor guy that was with him was about to pass out. Well, uh, I'm interested in a little more about Fassbender. Is what kind of man was he? Or what? I don't really know much about him. It's partly because of the way you learn photography. The, you know now that he's like uh, not exactly in the literature anymore. And um, was he a So many of those guys that really knew their photographs and made pictures aren't in the literature. That's yeah, it. You can't find, find anything by will. Yeah, you can't find them. Yeah, well, that's, one, that's one of them. They were making pictures, not writing. That's the thing now. Good God. Well, I mean, they're not even referred to by, by some of the other people who, like Newhall, who've become the standard authorities, well, you know. Don't, don't comment. <laughs> Well, maybe you should come, and I'm no. pretty interested in that in this no, oversight. I, you know, it's okay. one of the reasons I'm here, in a sense. You know, because I think the time well, is now it, coming it, where that's well, going to be changed. My my view of the way these guys act now and what they're doing is, well, I'm way behind the times. I'm getting to be an old fossil, but the approach to it and the way uh, the way they do things. Now, what what kinds of things are you referring to when you say this? I mean, to be a little more specific, just to give me an Working idea. with people, doing, doing things. You mean historical kind no, of work? No, no, this, this is history business. What the heck? This history is, is dead duck. It's what those guys knew that was in their head that others didn't pick up by working with them and pass along, and that just isn't going on anymore. I mean, just I, what I was lost, know, kind of? Half a dozen guys still fooling around with any of the stuff I'm interested in. I'm chiefly interested in the bicarbonated colloids. And uh, I don't, of course, carbo is a dead duck now because you, well, you can make your own carbon tissue easy enough, but you can't get any uh, bromide paper 
It's not overcoated. Which is which isn't. Well, first they they're putting so much harder in the daggone emulsion when they put it on there. It's like iron. It's yeah, that that that's what put bromoil to sleep. And then they put that supercoating on. There's nothing to do about supercoating. Now you can't get away with making carbos on the uh, uh, hardened gelatin, but bromoil's gone. Well, what the heck? Anybody can coat some paper with gelatin and make oil prints or oil transfers. Or anybody. I've got a friend and. Out in California, this man's still coating his own uh, three-color carbon paper. Hmm. Yeah, I think more and more people are, you know, even among the younger people, are now starting to realize they can. They're just going to have to make their own materials for some of these well, things. Here's one that he sent me just the other day. Now, is this an original? That's a three-color carbo. Hmm. Oh yeah, you can see a little bit of relief. Sure. Otherwise, it uh, looks like just a particularly nice kind of color print. You know what I mean? At first glance. Well, as far as um, color goes, why that's pretty close to the original. And yes. if you're lucky, there's information even in the deepest shadows there. <laughs> they don't have these beautiful rich blacks that they, which is <laughs> how they get away from explaining that the thing is underexposed and overdeveloped. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the. That's the. Become the modern 35 millimeter tradition, kind of the harsh, yeah. real harsh. Well, kind of thing. Oh, uh, so those up there, two of them are carbos and two of them are home coated paper. And uh, the one of the roses there is uh, made from direct separations that I made with a with a Leica. Made in large negatives, and then made the print using uh, non-fat dry milk powder and uh, uh, pigments. Back to me. So it's a, it's a casing print, basically. Yeah. Okay. Which is nothing but the same thing as, uh, as gum Arabic. A gum print, I mean. Yeah, yeah with a di just a different color. Isn't it? Well, yeah, you can make them out of glue or uh, yeah. albumin or uh, any you want to. Well, act differently, but just pass with it. It'll come up. Let me stick my head in here a second. This is a Tidy little dark room. Tidy? Well, I'm not tidy in the sense that I mean, in the sense of, no, that compact in size is what I really mean. <laughs> Yeah. Hmm. The two middle ones are a casing, the two end ones are carbos made out of McGraw Telegraphs. So. Ah. Yeah. I am. Uh, well, I made car uh, monotone carbos and coated them and stuff myself, but Russ has stayed right with it. And he, he's an interesting duck. You never heard of him, neither did anybody else. Oh, this is the man who made this print Russ here? Russ Cummings, yeah. He lives Russ in Monterey. Cummings? Cummings. He, uh, born there in, uh, yeah, born in Oakland, I think. And his father moved down to Pacific Grove. You know where that is? Mm -hmm. You know the coast there? A little bit, yeah. Well, it's not, uh, on the Monterey Peninsula. I've been out to a Solmar for a conference. Oh, well, it's in Pacific Grove. Yeah, that's the... And, uh, he, uh, were you at the SPE? Oh, thing? yeah. Oh, the last one out there. I've been a lot of those. That's the one that after it was over, I named all the things that I had seen right around the Asilomar grounds. And uh, 
put it on a tape to fill. He wrote back, he said, I thought I'd had a pretty good time before I got your tape. <laughs> and I spent uh, several winters out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, the, I'm interested in, in a little in getting your opinion a little more about this question of um, why so much of this has been overlooked. You know, I mean... I wish I knew. I mean, Newhall's a good, a good example. I mean, he's a very good scholar in a lot of respects. He certainly got well, his own opinions, and they certainly come many, through. How many of these guys who are writing all this stuff or researching it uh, ever did any work? You uh, mean as photographers? Yeah. Well, I, I think of, uh, well, you know, the camera magazine that was published there in, in uh, Philadelphia back in the 30s. Yeah. Frank Chambers was the publisher. Yes. Claude Anderson was the editor, and C.B. Nablet was one of the yes. uh, contributing editors. Well, I got to know Claude Anderson very well. He used to come to all the meetings. Frank Chambers would come to the annual dinner, but mm -hmm. as a matter of duty. Uh, Nablet, well, I met him, but can't remember anything happened. He wasn't making any pictures then, but he was writing articles. Mm -hmm. And uh, here, oh, after he retired from uh, RIT, he used to live just down the road here. Mm 